0: Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Good morning. You ever put on an old uh, shirt or an old pair of pants? And then realize you, you put on a little weight since the last time you wore it. <laughs> and then just wore it anyway. <laughs> That's what I did this morning. I'm, uh, <laughs> if my movements seem a little bit restricted, it's because I'm trying not to rip this thing. Um, <laughs> I was a little tired this morning when I woke up. I just didn't have it in me to go for another shirt, so... Um, my wife and I went to New York City this weekend to celebrate our 17-year anniversary, and uh, it was an awesome time, and we got back late last night, so I was a little tired. Um, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 38, so um, if you go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis 38, get, find your place there. We're going to work through this whole story. It's a long story. There's a lot. We can't skip any of it. Um, that's why we're not reading the whole passage before the sermon. I'm going to read it section at a time as, as I work through it. And um, so I want you to be able to follow along. We'll also have it up on the screen, but it's always good to be able to follow along in your own Bible. Um, this is one of those messy stories uh, that, that we come across in Scripture, the story of Judah and Tamar. And, um, and, and, it's, and it's very important. It's so important to see how God is, is weaving together this bigger story. Um, it's also really important in the life of Judah, and, and God is going to work in a big way in Judah's life through all of, all of it. Um, but part of, part of this story and stories like it where the sin is really ugly, um, part of that is to help us not to desire evil as, as they did, as the way that 1 Corinthians 10, 6 puts it. Uh, When you see like really really bad things happen and and the consequences of sin, all like one of the things that that's supposed to do is help you say, "Wow, I want to. I don't want to go that way." It's supposed to produce in us like this right kind of a fear, Um, and so that's part of the story. But then the bigger part is 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 what God's doing, and like like we heard last week that there's this this sovereign God who's working providentially through the story in spite of the sin, even using the sin, and he's going to bring something beautiful out of it all in the end. Um, And so in this story, God is going to redeem all of this. He's going to use it uh, to carry out his promise to crush the serpent's head, which we heard way back in Genesis chapter 3. And he's going to use it to humble and transform Judah Um, as well. And so there's there's major ways that this story is going to point us to the grace that can be found in Jesus. So that's kind of the little intro. Let's pray again and then we'll we'll jump into it. Father in heaven, I am so thankful this morning for your amazing grace. Uh, It's more amazing than we can wrap our heads around. It, it is more amazing than we can rightly feel in our emotions this morning. We, we have a hard time grasping how holy you are, uh, how, how wicked and, and, and evil our sin is, and, and therefore how, how far you had to stoop in order to... Rescue us from that sin. I pray that this story today would make us stand in awe of your amazing grace and in awe of your incredible wisdom and your sovereignty. I pray that this story would help us not to desire evil, Lord, that it would have warnings for us and ultimately that we would see our great need for Jesus through it. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So um, we're in this section of Genesis 37. We started last week through the end of the book. And it's really the, the story of, mostly we're going to be talking about Joseph, but it's, it's, also, it's really the story of Jacob's sons. Um, so, so chapter 37, verse 2, these are the generations of Jacob. Okay, that that's setting it up that this is not just about Joseph, though it is mostly going to be about him because he's the main player in in all that that takes place. Um so 38 kind of feels a little bit like this interruption in the story because we've already started looking at Joseph and if if you just read from 37, skipped 38, and kept going, it, the story would make perfect sense. And so you almost wonder, like, what's this doing here? Why this story about Judah and, and all of this mess that happens in his life? But it's, it's really important um, because we're going to see, like I said, that it does transform his life. But also what we're going to see is that though the, the, the promised blessing... That that travels through the line of Abraham and his descendants is going to go through through Joseph, the promised seed that we've been hearing a lot about is going to go through Judah. Now that's a big that's a big deal, right? Uh, the promised seed, the one that's going to come to crush the serpent's head. That's we should be like as we're reading through Genesis, we should be asking ourselves, well, what about the promised seed? How's this all going to work out? We know that the promised one who's going to come and crush the serpent's head is going to come through Abraham's family. So, so we're, we're, we're looking for this, right? But now Jacob's got 12 sons, and it's like, well, where's, where's this going to come? So this is in, important to that story. Um, it covers a long period of time, at least 20 years. It overlaps with the chapters that we're going to be reading next. So this isn't like a pause. It's more like this is what was happening with Judah as we're reading later about what's happening with Joseph. Um, and it helps us to understand how Judah is going to go from being this, uh, uh, he, he's, he's a really wicked guy. Um, last week, he's the one who, when they, when they throw Joseph in the pit, um, he's the one who's like, let's sell him. Let's sell him. Let's get some money for this. That's who he is, and then we're gonna. And then if we fast forward to chapter forty-four, we're gonna see him saying, "Hey, um, you know what? I'll I'll put my life for my younger brother Benjamin's." How does that happen? (laughs) How does somebody go from from that from from this like wicked? I don't give, I don't care at all about my brother. Let's sell him. Let's get some money to, I'll, I'll, I'll trade my life for him. This is the story that tells us how that happened. Judah's uh, sin is, is going to be really, really ugly. And uh, so that's where we're going to start, and then we're going to see how God works. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just work through this. Genesis uh, 38, verse 1. We're going to begin in this first kind of section the first 11 verses, we're going to be looking at Judah's wickedness and his wicked sons, okay? That's kind of how this first part is going to break down. So, verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. This whole chapter begins with Judah leaving the company of his brothers and befriending this pagan man named Hira. So the first thing that, that Moses wants us to see is Judah's sinful choice of a friend. Judah's wickedness and the pain and the brokenness that resulted from it are, are a warning for us. And one of the greatest warnings that it gives us is that we need to take care who we keep company with, who we, who we allow to to have an influence over us because we are malleable beings and and we're easily led astray by those that influence our lives. You're not impervious to influence. And and that's what Moses is wanting us to see. This is like the heading for this whole unbelievable story of sin. He turned aside from his brothers and he went down to a certain uh, a Dulamite, a Canaanite, whose name was Hira. And then you're going to see that Hira is going to come back up more in the story. So the first thing that happens is this isolation. He turned aside from his brothers. Now listen, his brothers are, are, are not the best characters. They're, they're not. But they're still the covenant people of God. They still know, they, they are still more righteous than, than the surrounding nations, I, I believe, um, in, in many ways. Back in Genesis 18, God has says this about, about Abraham. He said, I've chosen Abraham that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. And as we read the story we see that they do. They they have this understanding of the righteousness of God and even though they they are pretty rotten people, right? But they still have this this basic understanding. They know who the one true God is. And anyway, Judah goes away from them. He he leaves them. He leaves the company of of the people that at at the very least know uh, the righteousness of God, know who the one true God is. Um, And this was the first mistake that he makes. And Christians who who walk away from the covenant people of God, from, from the church and isolate themselves. They will find themselves going further into sin than they ever planned to go, just like Judah, and staying there longer than they ever planned on staying. That's, that's one of the ways that this story can warn us. Um, he, he turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. Um, this is a friendship that had, that had a... A really negative impact on his life. Um, later on in verses 12 and 20, it's going to show us that Moses is pointing out that Hira is party to Judah's sexual sin and subsequent cover-up. So he's trying to show us like Hira is a part of this, right? He's not to, to blame entirely, but he is he is influence, right? Um I was recently listening to a podcast and the pastor on the podcast said, show me the five most influential people in your life and I'll show you who you'll be in five years. And I was like, you know what? That's biblical because it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And Proverbs 13, 20 says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. So look, I'm not saying like, you, you, should, you should be intentionally having Friendships with people that you're trying to win to Christ. You're trying to lead to Christ. I'm not saying that we're supposed to isolate ourselves from everybody in the world, but, but here's the thing. We need to have a lot more discernment about who we're letting influence us. A lot more discernment. And I'm not just talking about the people you hang out with, because today we let people have influence over us through, through mediated through a screen, Right? So, I'm talking about like who is influencing you. Who are you listening to? Who are you reading? Who you hang out with at work? Who, who's, who is it that's, that's list, that, that you're listening to them and they're having, they are having an influence on you? That's why he says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. We do get deceived about this. So, don't be. That's just the first warning in this whole story. So, and I think it leads to what happens next in verse 2, that Judah ends up marrying this unnamed Canaanite woman, whatever her name is, she's the daughter of Shua. Um, And so that's the second thing, Judah's sinful marriage. It says in verse 2, There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. This is a marriage that's birthed out of lust rather than out of wisdom. The language Judas saw and and then he took is Moses recalling uh, of this covetous sin pattern that started all of this in the beginning. If you'll remember way back when the fall happened in Genesis chapter three, it says, and Eve saw the fruit and she took. She saw and she took, right? And then if you remember in chapter six, the, the giants, the Nephilim, they come about by, it says, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took. It's this, I see it, and I'm just going to take it kind of a, of a pattern. And it happens again here. It's to show. It's, this was born out of covetousness, out of lust. So this is not a wise decision here. Um, it's impulsive. It's sinful. It bears terrible fruit in his life, um, Judah would have known that his great-grandfather Abraham and his grandfather Isaac both had warned their sons against marrying a daughter of the Canaanites because the Canaanites were these, these wicked, idol-worshipping people. And, um, and they knew, like, do not do that, right? This is going to be uh, go terrible for you if, if you do this. And yet Judah does it and, um, and, and, in, and, of course, it bears terrible fruit in his life. He enters into the covenant of marriage with the daughter of the Canaanites. So, what happens next? He, they have kids, um, and they are wicked. So, verses 3 through 7. And she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him, and Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. So, all right, firstborn son, Ur, it's a terrible name. Um, (laughs) It's just... Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's two letters, I don't know. Um, so, so what's happening here? Well, it's important to know that by this point in the story, Judah, who's Jacob's fourthborn, is, is the next in line for the, for the rights and privileges of firstborn, of Jacob's sons, because there's just a lot that's been happening in the story, but Reuben, the firstborn, has disqualified himself because of gross sexual sin. And then the next two in line, Levi and Simeon, they disqualified themselves because of murderous rampage that they went on um, to, to get vengeance for their sister Dinah. So a lot of backstory. But three, the first three in line have all disqualified themselves. We, we learn this kind of later in the blessings that Jacob gives to his sons. But Judah's next in line. And that means that he, that his firstborn son is important because his firstborn son would be the next in line after him to receive the rights and privileges. Big deal, right? Well, he's so wicked that God puts him to death. I think it's important also that we highlight this phrase, wicked in the sight of the Lord. We're going to see that throughout the Bible. And, and, and the reason this is, I think, important is to say that it's not, it's not my opinion that matters about what's good or evil or your opinion or anybody else's except for God's. What does he say is, is right? What does he say is evil? That's right. Period. It's done. What, what's, if it's wicked in the sight of the Lord, it's wicked and that's how I need to see it. it Period. Because he's the only one who, who matters. He is the arbiter of reality. This God, He made everything. He, he is the one that we will stand before in the end. Uh, one pastor, in speaking of the death of Ur and Onan, pointed out the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. It tells us that way back in ch- chapter 2, uh, that, that, that sin is going to produce death, that the wages of sin is death, we find out in Romans. Um... And so we know that our sin, every sin is deserving of death, but we rarely see it play out so immediately in the Bible. It does happen, though. There are stories. 23,000 fall in the wilderness for their sexual immorality and idolatry. Um, I mean, you read through, like there's times when it happens like this. It happens in the New Testament, in Ananias and Sapphira. But, but it's rare. And, and that should make us be amazed at God's patience. What we tend to do is we see when somebody dies for their sin and we're like, oh, they put him to death. But guys, we should, be, we should do that whenever we see someone sin against this holy God and they keep on living. It, this, these kind of instances where someone is put to death for their sin. It highlights the fact that God is holy. He's holy. And He's perfectly just. And we need to learn to see that about our God and, and, and appreciate that about our God and love that about our God. We, we, we tend to want to pick and choose the attributes of God that we like and then just focus on those to the exclusion of others. But let's, let's read, I found this incredible quote by D.A. Carson. He says, we're not permitted to take one attribute of God and make everything of it. We cannot. Let's say take His sovereignty and forget His goodness. Or take His goodness and forget His holiness. His holiness is what makes Him The God of judgment. God's holiness spills over into his absolutely perfect judgment. So when we read that God put someone to death for their sin, we should put our hands over our mouths before we speak a word against God's holy justice. Will not the God of all the earth do what is right? God is the sum of all his attributes. And when we exclude the ones we don't like, we make a God to suit ourselves. We must learn to prize his his mercy and his love, but also his holiness and his perfect justice. His justice means that every sin will be judged perfectly, whether in this life or on the day of judgment or at the cross. Or at the cross. Every sin will be accounted for that God may be just and the justifier of those who trust in Christ's death on the cross as payment for their sin. Amen. All right, let's look at this passage again, verse 8. This can be a confusing part of the story. Uh, Verse 8, Then Judah said to Onan, the, the second son, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. So if you were kind of dozing off, you probably just like sat up. Oh. Okay, Um, this is a strange passage for modern readers, but let's try to understand what was it that's happening here? What's Onan's sin? This is confusing, right? Somebody this morning said to me, I read this passage a couple times, and I was like, did I just read that right? (laughs) Yeah, Um, okay, so commentator Kent Hughes is really helpful here. Here's what he says. Um, Do I have this? No, I don't, okay. I'll just read it. Onan's sin, Onan's sin lay in this. The existing marital laws directed that if a husband died without an heir, his brother was, then, was to then marry his widow and produce an heir for him by proxy. The son would not be his, but his deceased brother's son, and the legal heir to firstborn privileges. In fact, the son would be given the name of the dead man. Onan married Tamar, but refused his duty because he wanted the rights of the firstborn for himself. So the Lord also put him to death. End of quote. So keep in mind here um, God's promise of the seed who who will be the serpent crusher, and also the promise that through Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Jacob's family knows the importance of producing offspring in order to fulfill God's promise to save the world through their seed. But Onan disregards not only his responsibility to Tamar, but to the promise of God, and refuses to produce an heir for his dead brother. Why? Because as long as Er has no male child, Onan would be Judah's heir. So Onan made God's promises about him. That's the sin. He made it all about him. He had no concern for the greater purposes of God in the family of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And so it's a warning to us, do not make Do not make the kingdom of God about you. It's, 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 not, it's not about any one of us. Our lives, our lives, every bit of our lives are about the bigger, greater, glorious purposes of God. and What he's doing in the world. And there's no joy like the joy of getting caught up in that and, and forgetting yourself. So let's read on. Um, verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah my son grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. That's an important little note there. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So now we're getting into Judah's sinful treatment of Tamar. Onan's death means that according to the marital laws, now the third son, Shelah, would be expected to marry Tamar and produce children for Ur. But Judah now thinks that the problem is with Tamar. He, he's, right, because Onan was, was hiding what he was doing. Onan's making it look like he's being a good brother and doing the right thing, and, and but secretly, and only Tamar knows, he's, he's not. So, so Judah thinks Tamar's like a black widow. Like, whenever she, whoever she marries dies. Right? He doesn't realize it's actually his wicked sons. Um, so he, he manipulates Tamar, and he basically he tosses her to the side. He has no intention of letting his son marry her. Which, so, so she's a childless widow. That is an awful existence in this culture in this time. So he basically he condemns her to be destitute. So, so she sends her way to her father's house. She takes Judah at his word. She does what he says. And as we read, we know that Judah is, is not only putting his own tribe's existence in jeopardy, but he's, but he's also treating Tamar with um, absolute wickedness. So then we get to... The second big scene here, and that is so that's kind of all the first scene, and it's the longest, but that's like all of Judah's sin, his wicked sons. Now we get to Tamar's scheme in verses 12 through 23. So it says, In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. So now his wife, now now Judah's wife dies. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. He and his friend Hira, the Adullamite, there, there he is. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to name, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage, When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, You give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, there he is again, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at a name at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I've not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. Okay, a lot happens there. Let me summarize it. Tamar, who feels trapped in a desperate situation, schemes a way to get herself pregnant by Judah. And, And she does this by exploiting Judah's apparently known to her, practice of visiting prostitutes. Otherwise, why does she try this, right? And Judah, um, and, and it sounds like it's whenever he's hanging out maybe with his buddy, Hira, right? Whenever they go off, this is what they do. So under the influence of Hira, um, Judah has just given himself over to sexual immorality, And not only that, he's also participating in the pagan practices of the idol-worshipping surrounding nations. Did you you catch that? She's the cult prostitute. The temple prostitute that he thought that she was. Um, And in the midst of all of it, Judah's going to great lengths to hide it all. Keep it all buried. He's not going to go back and and bring this payment to to her himself. He's going to send Hira. Uh, Judah... so, Hira's the kind of friend that will help you cover up your sin. That's the kind of guy he is, right? Um, so, Judah, he sleeps with Tamar, thinking that she's a prostitute. But beforehand, she asks for uh, some, some personal identifying stuff. His, his signet and cord and his staff. Signet was, was probably like a seal, it probably hung around his neck on like a leather cord. And then his staff would have been most likely carved in very, very personal item. So it's like saying, uh, yeah, just in the, in the meantime, just give me your your license and your social security number, right? And, uh, and Judah's like, sure, yeah. So, okay. So Judah, he wants to keep this righteous veneer in spite of his, his slavery to sin. Um, and, and then verse 23 is telling, he says, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. It tells us very clearly Judah is not feeling any remorse for this sin against God. He's only concerned with what people know and what they think about him. That is important to Judah's character. He, he's, he's got this righteous veneer he puts on you know the church face um but really he's living in this gross sin and and nobody he doesn't want anybody to know about it so then that brings us to scene three so verses 24 through 30 about three months later judah was told tamar your your daughter-in-law has been immoral moreover she is pregnant by immorality And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And he said, and she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. When she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, the brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. So Perez comes out first, but is going to be the second born. Kind of pick up on that. Afterwards, afterward his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand. So he's the firstborn. His name was called Zerah. When it's discovered that Tamar's pregnant, Judah acts with self-righteous judgment. He is going to lay down the highest penalty that the law allows. She's going to be burned. Because why? Because she, she was guilty of prostitution? The very thing that he'd been doing? Um, it is the height of hypocrisy. It's the height of hypocrisy. He's guilty of sleeping with prostitutes, and he's ready to burn her at the stake the moment that he hears that she's apparently guilty of prostitution. Do you see, this is a warning for us, do you see how a self-righteous veneer blinds you to your own sin? It blinds you to your own sin. We see this in the New Testament with the, the religious rulers same thing. There's this self-righteousness. There's this veneer of, of this religious veneer, and, and they are completely blind. It blinds you, and that's where we find Judah. Romans two one through two is appropriate here. It says, "Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself." That's exactly what he did, isn't it? Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Now, we're supposed to be reading this and and we, we read what Judah does here. We are supposed to be in absolute awe at how wicked he is. And given what happened so far in the story, given what we've read about what happened to Judah's wicked sons, what should we expect to happen in this moment of the story? I mean, it's like the next sentence should be, and the Lord put him to death. But instead, God gives him the merciful gift of humility. It's it's an amazing turn of events in the story. He should be dead on the spot. And God humbles him. He gives him the great gift of humility. It is the very first step in repentance and it led to Judah's transformation. Verse 26, and Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. Since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. He did not know her again. Judah is publicly exposed and then he publicly humbles himself. You see that? That's what real, when, when real humility looks like. Man, I, don't, I don't care what anybody thinks but God. That's where he got. And because of, of this um, humbling of himself, of turning from his sin, it, it seems he, he, takes, he decides to take care of Tamar, right? He yet he never knew her again um, because of this and because of his repentance God restores Judah and he becomes the leader of his brothers and the greatest of all the tribes of Israel twins are born to Tamar from the sinful situation in Perez the scrappy second born is yet again the man that God chooses not the first born it's this pattern that we see God choosing the second born the one that's less likely. Perez would be the one through whom God would bring the Messiah. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? The serpent crusher is going to come through this? This situation? Matthew 1, 2 through 3, we, re- we get the genealogy of Jesus. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. There's Judah prominently. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. It's through Perez that the, the serpent crusher is coming. It's amazing. It's God's great mercy toward Judah Toward Tamar, the Lord Jesus will forever be called the lion of the tribe of Judah. If that's not mercy, I don't know what is. And so we see, in conclusion, this gospel grace for ruined sinners. At one level... This story is about Judah's wandering from God and the sinful season of life that he lived because of it. It's a season filled with painful consequences of regret, of shame, a season that Judah, no doubt, would have longed to take back except that it transformed him. Judah genuinely repented after this. His humiliation, which was discipline from the Lord, brought him back to his covenant God. But at another level, it's yet another story of God's providence. God working through all the details of life, even through the sinful choices of men to bring about his promises. God used Tamar to single-handedly preserve the line of Judah through whom King David and later Jesus would come to save his people from their sins. There are many lessons and warnings throughout the story that we might take away. That We must be careful who we let influence. That sin will take you farther than you want to go and leave you longer than you want to stay there. That it matters who you marry. That you should choose a, a spouse who you're equally yoked with, who loves Jesus as much as you do. That God is the one who determines what is good and evil and only His opinion matters in the end. That self-righteousness and a moral veneer will blind you to the sin that's in your life. That sin is deadly serious. That God is loving, but He's also holy. And every sin will be judged either on the cross or on you for eternity. But in the end, there's one great takeaway that I hope you'll see, that we'll all see, and that is the amazing patience and mercy of this holy God toward us. I just, I read this story and I just can't believe that God didn't give up on Judah. And then I realized this is a story about me. It's a story about all of us. Instead of putting Judah to death for his wickedness, he restored him. He used him. He brought him near. He exalted him even. And if you're a Christian, do you see that this is your story? It's Titus 3, 3-7 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness... That's the gospel. Your story and mine is one of amazing grace. It is good to remember that you did nothing to deserve God's forgiveness. Your adoption into the family of God was a gift. In His loving kindness, He lavished you with grace. He washed you clean. He gave you a new heart. He poured His Holy Spirit upon you. He made you an heir of His coming kingdom all through Jesus Christ who died in your place. And that grace is available to everyone who will, like Judah, humble himself and turn away from their sin and turn to God for mercy if you're here this morning and you've not yet put your faith in Jesus, I hope that you see today that even just one sin against this infinitely holy God is worthy of death. It's it's deserving of separation from Him eternally. But God is patiently giving you time to turn from your sin to Him and to put your trust in Him. Romans 2 4 and 5 says, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hardened and penitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. May it not be so, of any of you. May it not be so. I plead with you to turn from your sin and your unbelief to Jesus, who came to crush Satan under his feet. He died on the cross for your sins and for mine, and he rose from the grave to offer a new life to everyone who will believe in him. Do you see the kindness of God toward you? that is meant to lead you to repentance. Humble yourself before Him. Confess your sins to Him. And He will amaze you with grace beyond your wildest dreams. Let's pray together. God, you are so holy. It is... God, it's it's boggles the mind that the same God who is so high above us and so holy that when you came down at my, Mount Sinai that the whole mountain was covered with fire and, and the earth shook and and that you decreed that if anyone even so much as touched the mountain that they would be put to death. That's that is. You, that's who you are, and you are also the man upon the cross with your hands nailed to the cross, with your feet nailed to the cross, crying out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It is incredible that you would come down and save us. And not just that you would save us, but that you would do so through your own suffering. That you would take the sin upon yourself. That you would absorb the wrath that we deserve. That you would give grace to ruined sinners like us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.